Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Supreme Court and Affirmative Action. So, Richard, we have Affirmative Action back at the Supreme Court. The case here, Fisher v. University of Texas, in which a white woman claims that she was denied an admission slot at the University of Texas that she otherwise would have had because of the university's factoring in diversity in its admissions process. Now, Richard, why don't you start here by just explaining for our audience what the specific constitutional question at issue here is. Well, uh, the constitution contains the so-called equal protection clause, which says no state may deny any individual within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And the issue is exactly how that applies. Um, if you just look at it, it seems clear that in its original in, uh, formation, equal protection of the laws was actually concerned primarily with the enforcement of the criminal law. And what it meant – and this was exceedingly important at the time, so one should not simply say because it's narrow it was unimportant. It meant that you could not exempt people from the criminal law by virtue of their race if they were white. And it meant on the same thing is that you could not prosecute them forcibly, uh, forcibly under the criminal law if it turned out that they were black. And so what you were trying to do in the South was to introduce a system of equal justice for all – on the heels of slavery, and this is an enormous transformation, which it's very difficult to do. Uh, but as we start moving forward in time, uh, the Equal Protection Clause starts to expand itself far beyond its original base. And what we then start to see is it now applies to the question of how it is that you distribute government benefits to various groups um, through various public programs. Uh, back in 1868, uh, when this thing was first adopted, I don't think anybody really believed that government benefits were covered by the Equal Protection Clause, given that its concern was with the criminal prosecutions that I just mentioned. Uh, but as time goes on, it's clear that you have this. And then the question is, how does it apply when the government is giving benefits? And I think there are two ways in which you could start to think about this. One of them is the government is in the business of issuing permits to all sorts of people for all sorts of things. And I think everybody would say that it is simply unacceptable and unconstitutional if we decide that the standards for a black person to get a building permit are higher than those for a white person. And so to the extent that you're using the permit power, you cannot use that as a way to shift favors, opportunities and benefits from your enemies to your friends. But the other part of this problem is much more difficult. The government is now trying to run a very complicated institution. It could be a public school system or it could be a university. And the issue is what degree of management prerogatives do they start to have when they're no longer part of the regulatory state? And the way in which the Supreme Court has dealt with this is it says formally we know that there's no distinction between the regulatory function on the one hand and the educational functions on the other or the management functions. And then the subtext is really quite different because what that now starts to say is, oh, um, we do think that diversity is fairly important and you may take it into account. Nobody but Nobody would say that you could take it into account in the enforcement of the criminal law. 
So the question then is what sort of gap do you have between criminal enforcement on the one hand and the operation of this management system on the other? The term strict scrutiny, which is uh, the late Gerald Gunther used to say, you know, it used to be um, strict in theory and fatal in fact, certainly does not become fatal in fact when you start to apply to these administrative and educational and management type of tasks. And the Supreme Court <laughs> was groping with a test in connection with a very complicated Texas system of what it meant to talk about strict scrutiny. And the difficulty is, I think, they start with the wrong test strict scrutiny and end up in the wrong place, which is utter intellectual confusion. As a structural matter, <clears throat> your argument has been for a while that the analogy people need to be thinking of on this question when it comes to public universities is something called the business judgment rule. Explain what that is and, and how the parallel would apply here. Well, suppose you're a corporation and you're charged with the welfare of your shareholders. And what you have to do is you have to make an array of decisions. Let's say you have to make 10. And you know that these are all difficult decisions and you're going to get some of them wrong. Uh, so you now have the following rule. If you get nine of them right, uh, what you do is you get your salary and the shareholders get the benefit of these nine sound decisions. If you get one wrong, you have to pay for it. It means that the salary that you have will never be sufficient to cover your mistakes, so the entire system will cut down. So what the business judgment rule basically means is that when you're evaluating your officers acting in good faith with reasons for what they do, you net out the good with the bad, and if you don't like what the directors are doing, replace them with somebody else, but you can't charge them. Well, a university is running a business. It's a very complicated business. There are a lot of pressures on it. There are some people who want more affirmative action programs, greater amounts of diversity, and other people who want less or want none. Well, no matter what you do, you're going to offend some kind of a person. And so what the business judgment rule says is let these guys decide it. Let the political process inside the university dictate it. And when they come up with the decision in one university, um, if they meet this good faith standard, they're able to do it. Another university under other circumstances with different values can come out the opposite way. So with the business judgment rules, it gives all managements the benefit of the doubt. And it also means you don't have to have national policy on this issue uh, because this is a case in which all – one size won't fit all, that every university is going to have its own peculiar needs. And so what you need to do is to decentralize the outcome and that seems to be the one approach which is precluded by the current um, debate over what the Supreme Court under strict scrutiny really requires of its universities. Let me get you to expand on that for a minute. It's something that you hinted at there because a lot of conservatives and libertarians are sort of dismissive of affirmative action across the the board and, and you have a somewhat more nuanced response to it. Explain how you think of it in substantive terms, in policy terms. Yeah, well, look, I've been in a lot of universities. I've connected with a lot of businesses, a lot of schools. And the one thing about what Justice O'Connor said a long time ago in Gruder is that if you actually ask people who are running the military, who are running their businesses, running educational institutions, all of them say that to try to be colorblind in a world in which race matters as much as it does is an open invitation to disaster, uh, that even the students who are not minorities are not protected by the program, they think that an essential part of their development is that people of different races come in, even if it turns out their academic qualifications may not be as strong as those of the white students who admitted on some combination of boards and grades. Well, when you start to see all of these kinds of things, the question you have to ask yourself, here you are as an outsider, you don't have a stake in these institutions, uh, do you know enough to tell them that they're all wrong? when they're each in their own separate ways wants to do these kinds of programs. And being somebody who's in 
the Hayekian tradition who thinks that local knowledge and decentralized authority matters. My attitude is we don't want to force them into this, but we want to give them the option to adopt it if they do. Now, if you're going to do it for private institutions and get rid of the colorblind norm which is imposed by the civil rights law, which I've always thought to be a mistake and would repeal promptly. Um, I say that with a certain degree of pride, although certainly it's a minority position. Now you have public institutions with similar management imperatives and direct competition with private institutions. So what do you want to do? Well, you can't give them quite the same freedom as you give to private institutions because they are publicly funded. But generally speaking, if they're in the mainstream of private private institutions that are their direct competitors, you want to give them a pass when they start to adopt programs of this particular sort. Uh, the mix will get a lot better, interestingly, if you get rid of the civil rights laws because right now um, there is always some uncertainty as to whether or not the adoption of this or that particular affirmative action program is done as a prophylactic in order to keep the feds or the states from enforcing various kinds of sanctions against you. Get rid of the sanctions, uh, probably the amount of affirmative action will be reduced somewhat and the program will be stabilized because it will be tailored to the needs of individual institutions. Looking at the Supreme Court argument, on both sides, nothing came up. Um, uh, when Bert Ryan argued this um, for the um, for Ms. Fisher, he kept on talking about affirmative action as being pernicious. Well, I mean, this is pernicious and it's also adopted by 99% of private institutions. There's a real disconnect there. You don't want to start from that particular situation. What you may want to start from is the assumption which says, I think the trade-off you have has gone too far. And so when I was an interim dean and when I talk about this now, I always have the following statement. I'm not interested in talking about whether we do or do not have an affirmative action program. I take it as a given. One is going to take place. What I'm interested in is in running it right and the way in which you do that is you have to make marginal adjustments. So if it turns out you've taken too many students of color uh, for whom the um, experience is not a satisfactory one, you start to cut down a little bit. If you have a very strong cohort, you may expand it a bit one way or another. You argue this in terms of increments at the margin. You don't argue it in this holistic term that came up in the Texas case. And so I looked at this kind of hearing and I said nothing that anybody in this particular case said about how these programs are operated would resonate um, with me or with anybody else and that the only impact of this sort of the strict scrutiny affirmative action ban was the adoption of a very unwise system in Texas which is the 10% qualification rule which was a kind of an explicit effort to circumvent the anti-affirmative action rule and the net effect of which is to get you weaker black students than you would otherwise get if you could use some kind of explicit plus minus advantage for minority students um, that you think reflects the difference you want to have. The very thing, of course, which was outlawed um, when we had the two Michigan affirmative action cases back in 2003. To be clear there for our listeners, that 10 percent rule that you referred to is the top 10 percent of the graduating class at any Texas high school gets automatic admission into yeah, the university. No matter how strong the school is. And so what happens is if you're looking, for example, to try to figure out whether you take somebody who finishes half in his class at Bronx Science or the very top of his class at Podunk High School, what you do is you say, look, the median student at Bronx Science had a 750 on the math LSAT and the median student at Podunk had a 542. Well, you'd much rather have the median student from a strong school than the top student from a very weak school 
if what you're worried about is academics. Now, I'm not trying to bind anybody to this. Um, and if the school decides that it wants to get rid of its least qualified applicant from a major school like Bronx Science in order to take somebody in from Podunk, my view is they're responsible for making the trade-offs. They'll have to live with the consequences. If they get it right, congratulations. If they get it wrong, they'll recalibrate. The difficulty at the Supreme Court level is if you make a mistake, it's going to take 10 years of litigation to try and undo it, and there's no chance you'll get it right. If you're running it at the institutional level and you see something is going wrong, next year you start to do it better. And, and so what happens is this constant effort on finding national policy on this particular subject is, I think, the source of much of the grief that we have here. And um, there's a common discussion about the mismatch issue in which students are always put into places where they can succeed if they're given the kind of setback is a very true and relevant argument. I don't think it's an argument which stops affirmative action programs. I think it's an argument that a well-advised university would take into account in deciding to figure out what its composition is going to be for its graduate programs on the one hand and its undergraduate programs on the other. And they may not come up with the same answer in all cases. I mean, it's not that I trust these people perfectly because God knows they don't trust me perfectly. But if I had to choose between a Supreme Court making these kinds of decisions and individual institutions making them on their own account, I think the error rate is going to be a lot lower if you don't centralize it in the hands of nine individuals, some of whom had some fleeting experience in academics, but none of whom I think are actually on the ground in any particular institution and can tell you what the difference is between Wabash College on the one hand, which has an all-male student body, and Reed College on the other hand in which everybody is very far to the left of center, at least so I've been told. I mean, I don't want to tell other people how to run their lives. I think the institutions should figure it out and then the students can decide with their feet whether to attend a given university given its policy or to run in the opposite direction. Markets will do a lot better under these circumstances than solemn deliberation by non-learned men and women. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.